cup. This is remembering the list remembered. And um, I want to start by saying that this is a, a part one of a two-part mini-series. Um, the focus is on extreme mental illness and bizarre forms of child abuse, including incestuous sexual abuse and the inevitable fallout, the crime of matricide. Uh, this is your disclaimer. Listen at your own risk because this material is disturbing. Matricide, which is the murder of one's own mother, is a crime that we have seen depicted in films like Psycho and Carrie and um, Psycho's descendant, the series Bates Motel. Um, it's been explored in Greek mythology, too, with the story of Orestes killing Clytemnestra. Um, other media have touched on it, too. Um, but the idea of giving birth to your future killer is a chilling concept. Um, in this episode, I will be discussing the deeply, deeply disturbing story of matricide victim Barbara Bakelin and the son who became her killer, Anthony Bakelin. Now, she was born Barbara Daly on, in Cambridge, Miss, uh, Massachusetts on September 28, 1921. Her parents were Nina Daly and Frank Daly, and the family was upper middle class, um, she was the only child, I believe, and um, her life became troubled early on. She was just 11 years old when her father, Frank, who struggled with his mental health, took his life by carbon monoxide poisoning following a loss of money in the stock market crash. Frank Daly taking his life was bad enough, but the fact that young Barbara actually found her father's dead body added to the trauma. Not only did Frank have obvious mental issues, Nina Daly had a history of mental health problems, too. With the death of Frank Daly, Barbara and her mother received a handsome settlement in life insurance. You know, we often hear how families don't receive insurance money when their loved ones take their lives. But that's not the case here. Barbara and Nina went from being fairly well off to being rich, living in the ritzy Delmonico Hotel in New York City. By the time she hit her teens, Barbara began getting a lot of attention. She was seen as a great beauty, one of the 10 most beautiful girls in New York City, and she was also very stylish. Barbara proved to have quite a bit of ambition and became conspicuous in her social climbing. She was able to parlay her beauty, sense of style, and ambition into a successful modeling career, with her face gracing the pages of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. She wanted the finer things in life and dove into the international party scene. This led her to life as a popular socialite. She was pursued by wealthy and well-connected suitors, including John Jacob Astor VI, who is uh, rumored to have proposed marriage. Barbara was showing signs of suffering from the same mental condition that plagued her mother and she had private sessions with a psychiatrist named Foster Kennedy for all the good, it, the good it did her. Barbara was invited to Hollywood to do a screen test opposite actor Dana Andrews. Nothing came of it professionally, but Barbara made an important connection with another aspiring actress named Cornelia Bakelin, Dickie to her friends. It was through Dickie that Barbara met Brooks Bakelin. Brooks was Dickie's little brother, a trainee pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force. Barbara quickly became fixated on Brooks 
and it was clear that she would do anything to land him. The Bakeland family was filthy rich, with Brooks being the grandson of Bakelite plastic inventor, Leo Bakeland, who's known as the father of the plastics industry. Brooks had an incredible mind. Some called him the intellectual Errol Flynn and aspired to earn a Ph.D. in physics before ultimately deciding to become a writer, although he never wrote the novel that he had aspired to write. Barbara wanted to marry Brooks, and it was clear that she would stop at nothing to get him to propose. How did she achieve that end? She told Brooks that she was pregnant. Of course, the mores of the day insisted that a man marry a girl that he had impregnated. If he had been with her, he was to assume that he was the father. Barbara's plot worked, and the two were soon married in California. The thing is, Barbara was not actually pregnant, and I don't know how she handled that with Brooks. I'm not sure if she told him that she lost the baby, or if she told him that she mistakenly believed that she was pregnant, or if she told him the truth. But the marriage solidified her status as a socialite to be reckoned with. Soon she was hosting parties at their very fancy apartment on New York's Upper East Side. Guests included such luminaries as the famous playwright Tennessee Williams, the elusive Hollywood legend Greta Garbo, and novelist William Steering, to name a few. It wasn't long before Barbara really was pregnant, and on August 28, 1946, she gave birth to a baby boy named Anthony Bakelin, a.k.a. Tony. He would be her only child. Even before Tony's birth, Barbara was showing signs that she was mentally unwell. She was often rude to her party guests. She was depressed and she drank heavily. Barbara and Brooks were a highly dysfunctional couple who often engaged in extramarital affairs. It was not a good environment for a baby to be in, yet little Tony was born into all of this. I wonder how Brooks felt about it. You know, he probably felt fairly trapped because Barbara did indeed trap him. Anthony was an adorable baby, and for her part, Barbara did dote on him, and she liked to show him off, although much of his time was spent in the care of nannies and servants. He began to exhibit some disturbing personality traits as he grew older. For one thing, he enjoyed dissecting small insects and animals, and Brooks encouraged this weird behavior. I think he thought his son might be a science prodigy or something. But the older he got, it was clear to many people that Tony would have benefited from some type of therapy, particularly when he started painting pictures of people who were drenched in blood. Disturbingly, Barbara enjoyed showing off Tony's gruesome paintings to her friends when she threw dinner parties, instead of getting the child some help. In 1954, when Tony was eight, Barbara and Brooks decided that they needed a change of scenery. The family began living a, a nomadic, jet-set lifestyle. Like many children of the rich, Tony was enrolled in a European boarding school. They basically settled in Paris, although they rented apartments all over Europe, in London and parts of Italy, just all over the place. They hosted a party at their Paris apartment. At this particular party, Brooks met a beautiful girl who was 15 years his junior. Brooks indulged in, a, in an affair with her. He flaunted this affair in a way that he had never flaunted an affair before. This relationship was different. Brooks was in love. How deep was his love? Deep enough for him to ask Barbara for a divorce. Predictably, Barbara did not take Brooks' ask very well. 
In fact, she tried to take herself off the planet. Brooks quickly came to his senses, ended the affair, and abandoned all thoughts of a divorce. The marriage continued to hang by a slender thread, with the Bakelands now dividing their time between homes in Switzerland and a Spanish resort town. By the time Tony was a young man, he met Jake Cooper. Jake Cooper was Australian and he had a bad reputation. He was also bisexual. Barbara and Brooks were less than thrilled about this relationship. Tony was 20 years old now and trying to be more independent and less of a mommy and daddy's baby. Tony went with Jake on a trip to Morocco where they scored hallucinogenic drugs and it was believed that Tony and Jake had an affair, but Jake denied this claim. It's important to stress that at this time, homosexuality could get a person thrown in jail or a mental institution where they might be subjected to shock treatment or some other aggressive conversion treatment to turn them straight. Barbara was particularly out of sorts as this was not the type of life she wanted her son to be living and she went traipsing across Europe to retrieve her son, hoping to cure his homosexuality. She had actually hoped that Tony would be a ladies' man. Mother and son were on the way to Switzerland when they got stuck in France because Tony was without his passport. Barbara tried using feminine wiles to get what she wanted. Nothing doing. The duo were detained by French authorities overnight. Barbara was thrilled when Tony ditched Jake Cooper and introduced his parents to a new friend, a lovely girl from Spain named Sylvie. Brooks Bakeland connected with Sylvie in a special and specific way, to the point that he found himself in a heated romantic relationship with her. Yes, his son's girlfriend. Barbara did another dramatic, over-the-top, unaliving attempt when she found out about Brooks and Sylvie. But Brooks Bakeland didn't take the bait this time. He served Barbara with divorce papers in 1968. She tried to undo herself yet again, but Brooks went on with his life. In fact, he started a new life with Sylvie, marrying her and having a son with her. With all of this going on, Tony became more difficult and he started showing a lot of rage towards his mother. Tony continued producing creepy, horrific art. He scared many people and was, in fact, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. While Barbara dismissed his disturbing behavior as that of an eccentric genius, Brooks seemed downright afraid of his sinister offspring and shunned him as much as possible. He was in denial about Tony's schizophrenia and didn't believe in psychiatrists. Neither parent was equipped to help their deeply troubled son. Barbara could not handle Tony's diagnosis nor his sexual orientation, and she allegedly went on to give him her version of conversion therapy in order to remake him so that he would fit her idea of perfection, which did not include a gay or bisexual son. This involved hiring female sex workers to turn her son around. Tony might have enjoyed the company of the female sex workers, but much to his mother's devastation, it did not kill Tony's attraction to men. Desperate, Barbara allegedly did the unthinkable. She seduced her own son in order to turn him straight while they vacationed in Mallorca, Spain. 
At least she claimed to. She even bragged about it to her friends at her dinner parties, and their reactions ran the gamut from shock to disgust to disbelief. When they got back home from Spain, Tony began to spiral out of control. His mental health problems worsened to the point that he was placed in a psych ward. Meanwhile, Barbara found a brand new lover. His name was Samuel Adams Green, and he was a pop art curator from New York City who was about 20 years her junior. Of course, Barbara showed Tony's artwork featuring bloody bodies to Samuel, expecting him to be impressed with her son's immense artistic talent. He was not. In fact, he was repulsed and got as far away from Barbara and Tony as possible, just six weeks into the relationship. Barbara tried to seduce Samuel by going to his home, naked in the snow except for a lynx for a coat. She implored him to take her back, but he didn't want anything more to do with Barbara's craziness, nor her extremely bizarre, macabre son. Of course, this was a blow to Barbara's ego and self-esteem. Before long, Barbara and Tony were living together in London. It's not clear if Barbara's alleged sexual abuse of Tony continued or if it had ended. Whatever the case, Tony's mental illness continued to worsen with him slipping increasingly into a more childlike state. And did old Barbara. Their fights were becoming more frequent and more violent, and neighbors had to call the police on them a number of times. Tony was seen carrying a knife and wandering the streets, expressing a deep desire to eliminate all women. He had gotten so fed up with Barbara that he attempted to push her into traffic outside their home. The police arrested Tony for attempting to kill his mother. Barbara continued to live in denial, refusing to see Tony's behavior for what it was, symptoms of extreme mental illness. Tony was in psychiatric care for a brief spell, but Barbara allowed him to move back in with her and a therapist visited him for home therapy. The therapist told Barbara that he believed Tony capable of murder. Well, Barbara didn't believe it. On the evening of November 17, 1972, Barbara Bakelin was cooking dinner at her London home when she got into a heated argument with Tony about a guest that he wanted to bring to the home. Barbara told Tony that she didn't want this person to come over. And I'm not sure if this was a possible romantic interest that he wanted to come over, but Barbara did not want this person coming over, so she said no. 26-year-old Tony snapped. He became so enraged that he grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed his mother in the heart, killing her instantly. Barbara Daly Bakelin was 51 years old. After killing his mother, Tony Bakelin ordered Chinese takeout and was enjoying the scrumptious meal when he phoned the authorities and confessed to his crime. Tony seemed not to fully understand what he had done. He was locked up during the trial and asked people where his mother was. Tony was placed in a mental institution rather than jail. He was institutionalized for six years until he was released, thanks to his friends petitioning the courts. Brooks Bakeman thought it was a bad idea for Tony to be released. He thought he should be put away permanently, but Tony was set free. Upon his release, Tony went to New York City and moved in with his grandmother, Nina, who was 87 at this time. Less than a week later, Nina and Tony indulged in a heated argument because he wanted to make a long-distance call to a friend in England. Nina said no because it was too expensive. Tony responded by grabbing a kitchen knife 
and viciously stabbed Nina eight times. Miraculously, Nina survived her grandson's attempt on her life. Tony was arrested, and this time he was sent to Rikers Island in order to await trial. While there, he had access to a number of sexual partners, and he could also get hands on his money. Jail was a big old party for Tony, but he was hoping to make bail eight months into his stay. Upon being assessed by a jail psychiatrist, he was told that he couldn't be bailed out until they got access to the evaluation from the mental hospital that he had previously been committed to. Hours later, 35-year-old Tony Bakelin was found dead in his cell on March 20th, 1981, with a plastic bag over his head. It's not clear if Tony killed himself or if he was killed. But the irony is that Tony Bakelin was the heir to the Bakelite fortune, and his ancestor, Leo Bakelin, was the father of the plastic industry, as I said early in the story, and he invented the plastic bag. Brooks Bakelin wanted nothing further to do with his son. Did he have him killed? I guess we'll never know. The Barbara Bakelin and Tony Bakelin story is very dark and disturbing and has been written about in books and was the topic of Savage Grace, a 2007 film starring Julianne Moore and Eddie Redmayne. Samuel Adams Green claimed that the incest and sexual assault claims that Barbara made were possibly untrue and that Barbara only made the sick claims in order to shock. If she really wanted people to think that she was molesting her son when she wasn't, that's a whole other kind of sickness. I tend to think it was probably true, though, because of the way that Tony completely unraveled. But I guess there will always be questions on that score. But anyway, I'm Monica. This is Remembering the Misremembered. And I'll be back with you with uh, one more matricide story. See you soon.